Gracious Heavenly Father, please, uh, please watch over us. Uh, please help us to hear your word. Uh, may I explain it clearly and faithfully. And uh, please uh, bring home the truth of your word in such a way that uh, really brings deep transformation in our lives, even this day we pray. Amen. Uh, so I'm sure uh, those of you uh, who know me a little bit better would be surprised to know that some people think I'm a little bit intense. Uh, that would come as a surprise, I'm sure. Uh, a little bit radical, uh, perhaps in particular uh, about my faith. I just kind of could just learn to chill out a little bit. Uh, and, uh, and there's some truth to that. I could, uh, I am sometimes a little bit intense. I could learn to chill out. Uh, but on the other hand, I actually don't mind being a little bit intense, uh, a, bit, a bit radical, if you like. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I don't know if this was the same for you, uh, but when I was a kid, people used to use the word radical uh, basically in the same way as the word great. You know, that's radical, man. That was kind of the, the kind of catch cry. Uh, but if you look the word radical up in the dictionary, it actually means this. Right? It means a transformation relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something. So you might hear this in the media, right? A, a radical overhaul of the education system uh, wouldn't just be a few tweaks around the edges, right? It, it'd be comprehensive. It'd affect the, the fundamental nature of how we think about education. It'd transform everything. Right, for me, uh, that's what happened when I became a Christian. Right, not straight away, but over time, the truths of the gospel, the truths we're looking at today, had that kind of revolutionary impact on my life. It wasn't just a few tweaks around the edges, right? A little bit of God here, here, and here to make me a bit more respectable or whatever. Right? It was radical transformation affecting the, the, the fundamental nature of how I saw myself, how I saw life, how I saw other people, how I saw the world that we live in. Right? That, that's what we're looking at today. We're working on a, on a pretty big canvas. Right? In verses 1 to 7, we're, seeing, we're looking at the radical gospel and in verses 8 to 14, we're looking at the, the radical transformation that the gospel brings. Uh, as we come to this passage, there are two things we've got to remember, particularly if you weren't here last week. Uh, there's a handout on the back table uh, with some extra information about the book of Revelation. You might find that useful, right? But the two things we've got to remember. The first is uh, that Revelation's written in, in what's called uh, the genre of apocalyptic right? So uh, that means that it's full of symbolism. Uh, so I'll try to explain all the symbols on the way through. Uh, the second thing we've got to remember is that Revelation 4 and 5 go together. Right, so Revelation 4 is a little bit like the stage setting for Revelation 5. So in Revelation 4 that we looked at last week, uh, John saw a vision of God, God was sitting on his throne, and God was so glorious that even the highest orders of angels, right, all of creation, are praising God as he deserves. Right? And they're praising him in particular because he demonstrated his glory in creation. Right, he's created all things, they're saying. Right, the, the stage is set in Revelation 4 uh, for the drama of chapter 5. And you can see in the outline, in the, in the Connect card, that the drama in chapter 5 is really in four different scenes. The first scene in verse 1 uh, is about the radical sovereignty of God. Have a look there. John says, uh, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So here we've got the, the glorious creator God is sitting on his throne and, John, and John's eyes are drawn to his right hand. Now, of course, God doesn't literally have a hand. We, we know that. God is spirit, right? He doesn't have a hand. But in the vision, the, the right hand is a symbol of God's power and rule and his authority over all things. And in, and in God's right hand, uh, John sees a scroll, right? this scroll that has writing on both sides, 
Now, that's interesting. John puts that in there but because in his day, scribes usually only wrote on the inside of a scroll uh, because uh, scrolls uh, were made out of a plant called papyrus, which is a bit like celery, if you can imagine celery. Uh, so you'd make a, a papyrus scroll by cutting off strips of papyrus. And when you had enough strips, you'd glue them together to make a sheet. And when you had enough sheets, you'd glue them together to make a scroll. And you can imagine with all that gluing, uh, you typically only wrote on one side, because on the side that it was glued and where all the joins were, it was pretty bumpy uh, to write on the scroll. So typically, people only wrote on the inside of a scroll. The only exception to that was if someone was absolutely dead set that everything they had to say had to be in a single scroll. Right? It was a sign of the comprehensiveness of what they had to say. This scroll contains everything. And that's what's going on here. Right? The scroll in God's right hand, written on both sides, contains all of his plans, the fullness of his plans for his world particularly his plans to both judge and save. Right? To, to save his people, the, the, those who've believed in the Lord Jesus, uh, and, uh, um, and to judge those who in their sin refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus. It contains his plans to save his world, right? the, the good world that he loves, and to judge those who in their sin continue to destroy his world. It contains God's radical plans, uh, he, the fullness of God's plans to both save and judge. This is a, a radical picture. I'm just saying that God holds the destiny of every single human being, uh, of the entire world, in the palm of his hand. And if you believe in this God, uh, it will revolutionize your life. I remember when that happened for me. I'd lived my whole life, really, as if everything was fundamentally about me. The world should revolve around me and my plans and my desires and my hopes and my dreams. Right? Then one day, it was like my eyes were opened and I saw this God. I saw him sitting on his throne at the centre of the universe. I saw him holding the destiny of the entire world, holding my life in the palm of his hands. And it revolutionised how I thought about life. I realized that the world didn't revolve around me, but around God. It revolved around him and his plans and his purposes and his desires. I realized that I could find freedom and life and, and happiness, not in acting as if the world should sit in the palm of my hand, but in humbly recognizing that my life and the entire world sits in the palm of God's hand. That's radical. This is a really big view of God. The God who's radically sovereign, he's in control of everything. Now, with some really precious scrolls, you'd, kind of, you'd roll it up, you'd wrap a sheet around the outside, and you'd seal it with a hot wax seal. And the more, the more seals you had on it, the more important you were. But in this case, God puts seven seals on the scroll. You see that? Uh, seven uh, being a symbol, once again, of completeness. Right? The point being that the scroll's completely sealed up. Right? Uh, history tells us that uh, there was a Roman emperor uh, by the name of Vespasian, and uh, he had a scroll which had his will in it for when he died, and he sealed it with seven seals. And uh, when he died, only the person who was authorised or qualified, the person who was worthy, was able to open the seals so his will could be done. That's the picture here. The scroll in God's hand contains his will, his plans, his, his great purposes for his world, but it's all sealed up. 
completely sealed. His will can't be done. Which leads us to scene two. Verses two to four, we see uh, just how helpless humanity is. John says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth uh, could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Imagine this angel. He's a mighty angel because he's challenging the whole universe. You see that? Is there anyone in heaven or on earth or under the earth who's worthy to open the scroll? Now that question really only makes sense if you've got the God of chapter 4 in your head, if you've got the God of chapter 1 in your head, right? if you've got a picture of God where he's safe or tame or weak, where anyone can just waltz into his presence casually, right? if you've got that kind of picture of God, you won't understand this verse. Right? You'll think God's like a big teddy bear in the sky. Of course I can open the scroll. I'm a pretty good person. I'll just head into his presence and open up that scroll and we'll be all sorted, right? But if you've seen the God in chapter 4, the majestic God, the the transcendent God, the God who is holy, 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 the God where there's this massive gulf between him and us because he is holy and and we're sinful. If you've got that God in your mind, uh, you'll understand that there's no way any of us can enter his presence, let alone be worthy to open the scroll. That's the picture here. So John weeps. He weeps and weeps. He's sobbing. Why? Well, he, he knows that if this scroll isn't opened, it leaves humanity in a state of complete helplessness. Now, this is the point where, where some people think I'm being a bit intense. You mean complete helplessness? I mean, it's not that, not that bad, Aaron. Like, you know, ease up a bit. But think about it, right? I'm not just being melodramatic. If God's plans can't come to pass... Uh, there's no ultimate meaning or purpose for our lives. Lots of people think, who cares if God exists? And and even if God does exist, uh, who cares if if he can't intervene in his world and do anything? If God's impotent, if he can't carry out his plans, it's no big deal, right? But but Friedrich Nietzsche, who who was an atheist philosopher, uh, he understood that if God doesn't exist, or by extension, if God's unable to do anything in his world, uh, then life is meaningless, but he didn't think that was a bad thing necessarily. But this is what he said. He tells a story about a madman who, who kind of bursts into a crowded street and he says, where is God? This is the madman. I'll tell you, we have killed him. You and I, all of us are God's murderers. But how have we done this, he says? How are we able to, to kind of drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to, to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained our earth from its sun? Where are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there now any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? You see, if God doesn't exist, if he's got no power to do anything in his world, life is meaningless. There's no fixed point to guide us. No horizon, no sun, no truth, no morality, no purpose. 
It's just choose your own adventure. And if you don't like what someone else does, that's just your personal preference. Right? How shall we comfort ourselves, Nietzsche says. So John weeps. He weeps. He also weeps because he knows that if the scroll isn't open, there's no hope for a better world. And once again, most people agree, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, that there's something not quite right with our world. Uh, you, you might even concede that there's something not quite right with us, right, with humanity. Right, but then most people also think that uh, certain people or things will fix things up, will kind of sort us out, will sort the world out. Right? So there's this kind of general understanding uh, that if we could just educate people properly or implement the right political system or invest lots in, in advances in science and technology, uh, we're, we're heading towards a better world. Right? Somehow, some way, we're making the world a better place. And that's true, right? We are moving towards a better world. But here John weeps because he knows that it's only God who can bring about that world by unleashing his plans, you see. Sure, you can educate people. That's a good thing to do. I'm not anti-education. But history tells us that even the most educated people can do really evil things. They're just all the better at doing them. You can change the political system. And I think probably there are some political systems that are better than others. But once again, history tells us that evil has been and can be done under all political systems. You can advance science and technology, no problem with that. But history tells us those kind of advances uh, can be used for good. I think nuclear medicine, but also for evil. Think nuclear weapons. Right, John weeps because he knows that the problem with the world, the problem with humanity, can only be dealt with by God. Only God can deal uh, with the core of our problem. Only God can deal with our sin, the evil in our hearts, our innate desire to live as if the world should revolve around us rather than around him. Our innate desire to be consumed uh, by love for ourselves rather than with love for God and for others. Right, so if this scroll isn't opened, uh, this world that we live in, uh, with all its evil and injustice and brokenness and oppression, this world that we live in is as good as it gets. No hope of a better world, no hope of a better humanity. So John weeps. Right, that's the picture in scene two. It's bleak, it's dark, it's helpless. And I don't want to dilute that because it's only when you really feel the weight of that that you see the full glory of what Christ has done. Or you should go, well, I was kind of 98% there and Jesus helped me over the line. Well, you weren't 98% there. We're radically helpless. Have a look at Christ's triumph in verses 5 to 7. Uh, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Uh, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him uh, who sat on the throne." Oh, sorry, I said last week, I explained why, but I said that these uh, elders and these four living creatures, uh, they're powerful angels, right? If you can imagine uh, the throne room of a king, uh, there's going to be lots of people around them, 
right? Attendants of different kinds. That's, that's these elders and angels. And in apocalyptic literature, uh, one of the key roles of angels, uh, you see it in Daniel 10 to 12, for example, but one of the key roles of angels is to interpret what's going on. Uh, so that's what happens here, right? This angel, the elder, says to John, don't weep, John. Right? You, you, you don't quite get it. Right? John's like, what do you mean don't weep? Like, it's, it's right to weep. Right? But the, the elder says, don't weep because there is someone who's worthy to open the scroll. Right? Who is this? Well, first, it's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You might want to write down a reference, but in Genesis chapter 49, one of the sons of Jacob, Judah, he was told that one day one of his descendants, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, would be honoured and obeyed by all nations. He's going to be a global king, a cosmic king. This line of the tribe of Judah is the Messiah, God's promised king, the one who comes to defeat humanity's greatest enemies and rule over everyone and everything. Likewise, the root of David. You want to chase up Isaiah chapter 11, another passage about God's promised king, the Messiah. So this angel says to John, don't weep because God's promised king, right? Christ himself has triumphed. Christ has triumphed where no one else has over Satan and sin and death. So he is worthy. He's qualified. He's authorized to enter into God's presence and open the scroll. But then that weird thing happens that Gabby talked about in the kids' talk, right? Because even though the elder points John to the lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, when he looks, he sees a lamb. It's not that there's a lion and a lamb. It's that the lion is a lamb. This kind of mixed symbol type thing. Now, of course, it's pretty common for uh, earthly kingdoms uh, to kind of exalt a particular animal to symbolise their power. We're, we're familiar with this. You know, like Russia has the bear. Uh, Britain has the lion. Uh, the US has the eagle. Right? That's pretty common. God's kingdom has this lion who is a lamb. What, what does that symbolise about God's kingdom? Well, first, it symbolises the fact that Christ, God's promised king, has triumphed. Christ has defeated every foe. But it tells us that he's only defeated those foes because he was willing to lay down his life like a sacrificial lamb. In this paradoxical way, his death on the cross is his ultimate moment of triumph, where we see his glory. What's this about sacrificial lambs? In the Old Testament, you might remember God told his people that if they wanted to be forgiven of their sins, freed from his judgment, uh, they had to sacrifice a lamb in their place. So the lamb died in their stead. The lamb was a substitute. The lamb bore the punishment that they deserved uh, because of their sin. But that's a bit weird, isn't it? Because uh, it's not like a little lamb is really a proper substitute for a human being. That's not really a, a representative, right? So all those lambs in the Old Testament were really just signposts pointing us to the ultimate lamb. So in John's Gospel, uh, John the Baptist, he sees uh, Christ and he says, the lamb of God has come, the ultimate lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. But how does this work? Right? It's saying... Christ is the perfect human being. So he's able to die as a substitute for other human beings, for us. And Christ is also the perfect son of God. So he's able to die as a substitute not just for the sins of one person, not just for your sins, but for the sins of humanity. To take away the sins of the world. 
But notice where Christ is standing now. Have a look. He's, he's at the centre of God's throne. He's being worshipped by everyone, right? Because even though Christ died for our sin, he's the Lamb of God, he triumphed. Christ lives and reigns and rules as the King, as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what all the sevens are about. Have a look there, the seven horns. Uh, That symbolises the horns in apocalyptic, they're always about power and rule, right? So seven horns symbolises the completeness of Christ's rule. Seven eyes. Eyes are always about knowledge, So that tells us uh, about the completeness of Christ's knowledge. He he sees everything, he knows everything. Uh, Seven spirits, symbolizing the fact that when Christ ascended to his throne, uh, he poured out God's spirit so that one day God's presence can fill the whole earth, completely fill the earth. So I hope you're seeing the contrast between scenes two and three. If it wasn't for Christ, for his life, death and resurrection, we'd be completely helpless. It's time for weeping. No hope of forgiveness, no hope of freedom, no hope of life, no hope of a better world. Utterly helpless. But because of Christ, we can triumph. Christ is our only hope. He's the only one who's worthy, who's authorised to enter God's presence, to open the scroll and unleash God's plans in the world. God's plans to fully and finally triumph over evil, not just in the world out there, but in our hearts. I want you to see that this is a really big canvas. Imagine a, a massive painting. We've got a God here who is much bigger than most of us ever imagined. Radically sovereign. Don't put God in a box. We've got sin here that is much deeper than most of us ever imagine. We're radically helpless. You're not that good a person. You can't just clean yourself up by a few good works. No, apart from Christ, we're stuffed. Right? That's the picture. Radically helpless. And we've got a king here who is much more glorious than any of us imagine. This is a radical triumph. It's a radical gospel. And it brings radical transformation. Radical transformation in God's people. Now have a look in verse 8. Uh, God's people uh, are a joyful people. Uh, I'll point to something in verse 8 in particular in a second. But uh, in our culture, heaven is often portrayed, isn't it, uh, with people uh, perhaps uh, wearing white gowns, uh, floating around on clouds and playing harps. Uh, and that's what we have here, isn't it? That This is where it comes from, uh, in a way. Uh, not quite. Uh, but anyway, but we've got a, the, the harp here is a symbol. Like, it's not like everyone gets into heaven and, and you're given your harp on the way in. right? It, it, the harp is a symbol uh, because in John's day, you only played a harp at a wedding or a party or, or some kind of cel- celebration. It's a bit like the ukulele. Right? Maybe you could get away with playing the, playing the ukulele at a funeral, but it's kind of a happy instrument, right? Like, uh, so the, the harp was like that. So in Psalm 137, for example, the Jews are weeping, they're in exile in Babylon, and what do they do with their harps? They hung them up in the trees. This is no time for pulling a harp out. No reason for joy when you're in exile. But in Revelation 5, it's different, because spiritually speaking, we who were exiled from God, distant from God, have been brought near to God, close to God, into his presence, because of Christ. So there's every reason to get out the harps. Right? It's a time of joy. 
See the contrast. John was weeping, but now the harps are out. It's joy. A second, God's people are a prayerful people. Have a look in verse 8. John says, Each of the elders is holding a golden bowl full of incense, and the incense symbolizes the prayers of God's people floating up before God's throne. And now, if God's scroll hadn't been opened, uh, there would be little to no reason to pray. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done. Well, what's the point in praying that God's kingdom would come if it can't come? It's all sealed up, right? What's the point in praying that God's will would be done in his world if it can't be done? It's sealed up. But Christ has opened the scroll. There's every reason to pray, to pray boldly. Because we know that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So God's people are a prayerful people. Uh, Third, they're a worshipping people. Verse 9, the elders are singing a new song. Right, It's new because it's addressed to the Lamb, right, the Son of God. It's new because its primary focus is on the salvation, not on creation. Like chapter 4 was predominantly about God's glory and creation. Now we've got the glory of, of salvation through Christ. And it's new because the elders in verse 9, the angels in verse 11, the, all of creation in verse 13, uh, they're not declaring, notice this, they're not declaring that the Roman emperor is worthy of worship as he wanted them to. They're declaring that Christ is Lord. Christ is worthy of worship. Every Roman emperor, every human ruler, every human being, the founder of every other religion is enslaved to sin. Just just try it. You try it. You just try not sinning for a day. You can't. We can't. But Christ triumphed over sin. He lived the perfect life, so he is worthy of worship. The only one who's worthy. Likewise, every Roman emperor, every human ruler, every human being, the founder of every other religion is enslaved to death. Just try not dying. You'll struggle, right? But Christ triumphed over death. He triumphed. He's worthy of worship. Don't worship the dead guy. Worship the one who lives and reigns and rules, right? So the American pastor, Kevin DeYoung, he says, the defining characteristic of the church of Jesus Christ is that we're a people committed to the worship of Jesus Christ. And it's because of that commitment that we're a missionary people. I'm upsetting the kids. Verses 9 and 10, have a look there. We're told that as Christians, we haven't just been saved from something, radical helplessness, we've been saved for something or for someone. Our lives have been purchased for God. Purchased at great cost, right? Purchased by Christ's blood. So if you're a Christian, your life is not your own. My life is not my own. We belong to God. From now on, we live our lives not to advance our plans and mission, but to advance God's plans and mission. That's our job. And God's mission is that we would be a kingdom of priests. See it there? A priest being someone who mediates between God and man. And as the people of God, we mediate the blessings of God's kingdom to as many people as possible by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The good news that Christ is the Lamb of God who died for their sins. That Christ is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who triumphed 
and lives and reigns and rules so they can have freedom and life and hope. And notice the scope of the mission. Verse 9, through Christ's blood, God purchased for himself persons. Notice that, individual people from every tribe and language and nation. Nation, which really means people group. Not nation state, but people group. So if we believe this, we'll be encouraged that at least some of those people live on your street. At least some of the people are in your workplace or in your class. All you've got to do is share the good news of the kingdom with them. Christ has done the rest. He purchased their salvation at the cross. They just have to hear the good news. But around the world, there are about 16,000 people groups and 6,000 of those are completely unreached. But the definition of unreached people group is like that there's no, uh, there's no Christians, no one preaching the gospel, no church, uh, no Bible in their own language, no pastors, absolutely nothing. Completely unreached, 6,000 people groups. And so if we believe that Christ died to, to purchase people from every tribe and language and people, at least some of us should go to every tribe and language and people, right? If we think Christ is worthy of worship, not just of 10,000 people groups, but people from every tribe and language and tongue, then some of us should go to every tribe and language and tongue. John Piper says that missions exist because worship doesn't. But if you're convinced that Christ is worthy of global worship, and there are some people groups who aren't worshipping him, then we need to take the gospel to them. Uh, so some people think I'm a bit intense and maybe you've joined that club. A bit radical. And I'm one little that's true. I'm not this intense all the time, I promise. Uh, but part of the reason for that is if we really believe this gospel, uh, it is radical. It'll radically transform your life. It won't just be a little tweak here and there just to sharpen up your morality a bit. Right? If you believe this gospel, it'll be comprehensive change, radical overhaul. As we become more joyful, more prayerful, more worshipful, more, more missional people. Now, let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that the word uh, that we've looked at this day would be sown deeply in our hearts, uh, that we might be more and more deeply convinced of these great truths of the gospel, that our lives might be uh, changed by them, that we might be willing to humbly submit to your word and allow you to change us, and that we might become more joyful and more prayerful, that we might be committed to our worship of, of our Lord Jesus, our Saviour and King, and that we might give our lives to uh, taking the good news about him to the nations, uh, that he might be worshipped uh, from pe by people from every tribe and language and nation. Amen.